Welcome to the Feeding the Starving Artist podcast. My name is Rick Goodstein, and with me today is Ron McCurdy. As always, Ron, how are you, sir? Great, great, Rick. How are you doing, my friend? Oh, I couldn't be better. Thanks for asking. we got a special guest today yes, joining us. Yes, we do. We have uh, Mike East joining us from uh, actually New York City today. And Mike is the um, CEO and owner of TTS Studios in Charleston, South Carolina. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. You bet. Well, tell us uh, what you do and what is TTS Studios? All right. So we started the company. I started the company in 2016. Uh, I was a touring production manager for Broadway tours. Um, and I was basically tired of being gone five to nine months out of the year and was always annoyed with all the scene shops that I had to work with as a production manager. And so when I was sort of like, weighing all of the options on what to do next, uh, the sensible thing seemed to be starting a professional scene shop. So TTS Studios is a commercial scenic studio started specifically targeting the touring Broadway market. And basically anything that you see on stage that is scenic, uh, that looks like a set piece or a prop or anything like that, we can make. So we will receive set designs uh, from, you know, a design packet. We will take that, figure out what all the parameters are for the tour, what types of venues they're going to be playing in. And then we engineer all the pieces to break apart into the smallest sort of components as possible so that they can then be loaded onto trucks and then trucked from one venue to the next, sometimes day after day after day. So we handle everything from the 3D technical design uh, in CAD software to the CNC work, both in a router as well as a water jet uh, machine. And then we do, you know, either wood framing or steel or aluminum framing, clad it typically with wood or a plastic, and then paint it to look like whatever the designers want it to look like. Amazing. You know, the reality that you get put into, a, you know, kind of a false world when you go into a theater is, is part of the magic that you bring to uh, production. So I knew you, Mike, as a student when you were uh, kind of exploring different ways to uh, express your artistry, if you will. And if I remember, you were a bit of a actor, but you always were most interested in building stuff. Y you were a theater major, basically. Tell us a little bit about how you knew at some point when you were younger that you wanted to, number one, pursue theater as, as a profession and when you got that bug and how you got that bug. Sure. So I grew up, um, my family was all in construction. So I grew up, you know, around power tools, uh, super safe as a 13 year old on a job site, building <laughs> houses. And in high school, I had to take an art elective and I was terrible at drawing and all the other artsy things. So uh, I was approached by a friend who was in the theater department and he was like maybe you can just come build stuff with us and i was like that sounds awesome and so i did and then of course through uh being in the building with all of those people you know you like you say you catch the bug a little bit i was always involved in uh choirs growing up so uh the music director of one of the shows was like oh he can sing let's put him in the show and i was like what <laughs> uh had no no intention or just Fire, uh, but of course had a great time with it and it was never I can I can pretty safely say it was never 
my intention to become a performer ever. Like it was just not something that uh, was was on the horizon for me. I, I enjoyed it, but uh, I couldn't imagine uh, that lifestyle in a prolonged way for myself. And so when it came time to college for college, I was actually exploring uh, the different construction management degrees. Uh, so University of Florida had a very good program, and then Clemson has a really great program for that as well. Um, and then as I was visiting uh, Clemson, one of my friends who uh, I went to high school with was auditioning for the program. And then there was a lovely woman named Maria Stamey, who uh, basically caught me as I was waiting for him to finish. And she was just picking my brain and picking my brain. And she was like, why don't you come, you know, like try out too? And I was like, nah, I'm good. I'm going to go to this construction thing. It's going to be fine. <laughs> and uh, she convinced me and I went in and did a little like pulled out of my backside rehearsed unrehearsed audition and got into the program and still always sort of had in the back of my brain that I would eventually just do the construction thing and whatever but maybe this would be fun for a little while and then as part of my work study um, I was placed in the Brook Center which is the the roadhouse for lack of a better word at Clemson where all the touring shows come through and that was sort of the 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 impetus of oh no i could actually turn this into a career cool so seeing those four or five truck uh broadway tours coming through seeing what went into them you know i just got fascinated by all the like tetris and the logistics behind how to figure out how to have a very full stage worth of you know rich production material that all packs up in the tiny little boxes and rolls onto a truck every day so i Embraced it, uh, certainly did a little bit more performing for fun, uh, but that was just it. It was for fun and then experimented a little bit with some design stuff because I was like, eh, maybe I'll do that. Uh, but then ultimately circled back to uh, the place where I was most confident and most comfortable, which was in the sort of like technical design and technical uh, sort of management of, of, of shows. So played with a little bit of that throughout the rest of my, you know, undergrad and then went to grad school for production engineering and automation. And then uh, about a year later, got very convinced that that was not a right choice for me. <laughs> uh, um, and, you know, the, the goal after leaving college was I want to production manage. I want to, you know, help put the shows together from top to bottom, like encompassing all the things, not just the scenic elements, but, you know, lighting, sound, all of that sort of choreography for lack of a better word of all of those elements like that was there was art in that to me you know and so I wanted to pursue that and so I assumed that I would need to get out there be a technician for several years and then you know 10 years down the road maybe I could get one of those jobs and when I was doing a summer uh, job at Spoleto Festival in Charleston the year the summer after my first year of grad school uh, the man who ran the production department there offered me a job as his assistant production manager. And so rather than, you know, sitting around and waiting for another two years and then maybe whatever, it's just like, well, if the job's presenting itself, I might as well take it. And so I did. And yeah, then I got involved yeah. in touring and traveled around in all kinds of different terrible venues around the country. <laughs> uh, I think I think in the eight years that I was involved in touring i visited 270 theaters in the country not that you uh, were counting but yeah <laughs> I, was, I was it was you know i walked into everyone and i was like that's a terrible choice okay so it was just like this constant mental log of what <laughs> what seemed to be wise and what seemed to not be 
and yeah, it was great. I got to tour all around the world. I went to Tokyo uh, a couple of times, toured the UK, uh, went down to Bogota on a show. So had a had a lot of really awesome opportunities in that world. And then, like I said, just got a little tired of traveling. And mm. yeah. so, so Mike, let me ask this question: What what, yeah. what were some of the shows that you that you that you worked on? Uh, and and give us a sense of what the schedule would be like when you like, I mean, you mentioned being gone for, for quite a bit. What was the schedule mm-hmm. like, and what were some of the shows that you were able to to be a part of? So the schedule would change um, dramatically. Sorry for the pun, uh, based on whatever <laughs> the different project was. Right. So the the first tour I worked on was a show called Avenue Q, um, and when I jumped onto that tour, it was in its sort of second tour life, right? So in the touring industry, there's the Broadway show that happens and everybody loves. Then it goes into the first national touring market uh, where it sits for, you know, weeks on end in different large scale markets like Chicago, Boston, et cetera. Um, but then after it does that for a, a year, three years, whatever the the schedule ends up being, they then sell the show off to a sort of lower tier tour company and and I don't mean lower tier as like they suck at the job or anything like that but it's just like uh it's mostly the lower markets so market, you know, okay. Binghamton New York or uh you know Clemson South Carolina sorry Rick you know uh yeah. there, there, are all, there are all these B markets and C markets that people really want to see these shows um, but they can't afford the 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 bigger projects uh, when they're in their sort of like first national, you know, format. Uh, mm-hmm. And those first national formats typically take two to three days to load in. So when you go down to the smaller tier of touring, you actually have to shrink everything, right? And so you go from having the budget for like 10 or 12 53-foot trucks worth of stuff down to two to four trucks worth of stuff. And of course, mm-hmm. the designers and the producers want to see the exact same thing on stage as they saw <laughs> in the first one. So you got to figure out how to help navigate to as close to that as possible. So that first tour that I jumped on was the second national tour at Avenue Q. And it was a three-truck tour. And we were playing different venues every day. So, you know, the tech schedule and the like rehearsal schedule, I think we spent two weeks at Clemson, which is where we teched the show and got it up and running for the first time. Uh, but then once we left Clemson, we went to Burlington, Vermont, uh, and we're, we were there for two days. And then we went back down to North Carolina for a day and then just started bouncing around. And then the first 90 days of the tour, I think we hit 70 cities. Oh my gosh. Insane. So the schedule for that is uh, for the tour guys, us, uh, we sleep on a like a rock and roll sleeper bus, right? And we maybe go to sleep at three o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, something like that. And then hopefully the driver, you know, wakes us up in time for load in the next day. Uh, Typically around eight o'clock in the morning, you will walk off the bus and you're in a new city you've never seen before. Sometimes it's raining, whatever. Uh, (laughs) You walk in the venue, you spend the first 10 or 15 minutes trying to get oriented to the space, make sure that it lines up with the paperwork that they sent you. And then you start installing the show. And then around two or three o'clock in the afternoon, you're supposed to be done installing a whole show, which is a little madness, right? That's lighting, that's sound, that's costumes, that's scenery. It's everything that uh, is needed for the production of that show comes with you on the tour. And then you do 
a little rehearsal with the cast in the afternoon, a little sound check in the afternoon, and then you do a show that night, seven, eight o'clock, and then it's done around 10, and then you start breaking it all down and you put it all back on trucks. And so hopefully you're done by, you know, midnight, one o'clock. And because you're on a tour bus, you then have to, you know, go check and see if any of the dressing rooms are still open so that you can actually take a shower because that's the only real way that you can do that because you don't have a hotel room or anything like that. And then you jump back on the bus and then you go to the next venue and do it again and do it again and do it again. Mike, uh, that, that sounds glamorous to me. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's really hard. I did, I did a, uh, I did a really terrible, uh, like study <laughs> once upon a time. Cause it was fun. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm recognizing even as I'm telling you about this now, I'm like getting excited about it. Cause it was, you know, it was, it was <laughs> exhilarating, but uh, I ended up doing a, like, how much do I make per hour on a project like this? <laughs> Don't, Don't do the math. Don't do the math. Don't ever do the math. But what I will say is that, you know, 15 years down the road, the the value that I see now in looking back at that is I didn't I didn't have a way to articulate this necessarily, but I used to say that as as I was hiring for Spoleto employees or for my company's employees if they had touring on their resume, it was kind of like an immediate in. It was like, oh, great. These people are on a different level than a lot of these other people. And, you know, eight in the morning till midnight, that's a very long day, right? And if you're doing that six, seven days a week, what, I, what I've come to appreciate is that people were basically getting twice the amount of experience in the same amount of time as a lot of the other people who are maybe the same age, right? And so all of a sudden, you know, you've been touring for 10 years. Great. You've been working professionally for 20 years <laughs> so so there's there's craziness to it all but there's also value to it um you know we could get into the the, the negatives of touring all day long of you know how how people get treated and you know the 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 cynicism of how everyone works themselves to the bone to entertain rich old white people but like maybe we'll maybe we'll stay out of that way <laughs> <laughs> well yeah you have kind of popped the uh the, the bubble of a romance of a tour in Broadway show, the actors and mm -hmm. musicians would have a different schedule. So, yeah, you know, to, just because there'll be some people interested in that side of it as well. Yeah, that's fair. Um, sorry, everybody, that was the the cynical technician side. <laughs> um, so the the performers, uh, everything that happens with a tour routing is all about how long it takes for a truck or a bus to get from one city to the next, right? So as they're trying to figure out the path of of the show and the different venues that are you know asking the show to come here at different times for their purposes, we have to make sure that you can actually get there on time. So the performers, both the band members and the cast, would travel on sort of a a standard upright bus, like something that you would see like a sports team traveling in, right? Comfortable for maybe four or five hours at a time, but you're never going to, you know, like lean all the way back and take a great nap. Um, but oftentimes, you know, there'd be 30 actors and 12 musicians. So, you know, it's a lot of people to, 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 to trolley around. Uh, when their show would end on a night and the crew would start, you know, doing the loadout, uh, the performers would go to their hotel. So they'd have a hotel in every venue and they would get to, you know, relax. If there were restaurants around, they could just do whatever they needed to do. Um, and then there would be a bus call the next morning. They'd have to get up, they get on the bus, then they drive on the bus for four or five hours to the next city, get checked into their new hotel, 
probably have a couple of few hours to mess around, do whatever they needed to do. And then they would come to the venue and start getting into costume and getting into microphones and starting to do sound check. And, uh, you know, if, if there was anything significant that had to be cut from the show because of uh, venue limitation, then we would sort of block through that and rehearse that. And so it was, uh, it was always a challenge for them, but in a kind of like uniquely creative way of, you know, they've been trained to do the same version of the show over and over and over again. Um, but sometimes that giant piece of scenery that used to be here is now four feet further downstage than it was the day before because of whatever the venue limitation is. Um, so they'd have to sort of like learn that very quickly. And, you know, people get sick on tours all the time. Um, and so there was always some sort of an understudy or a swing component of somebody who had not done the track of the lead yet. And then we'd have to, you know, make enough time to to get them rehearsed and get them in um and same with the band i mean there are no understudies for the bands in most of these cases right so if the key player uh goes out because they've got covid or you know whatever sickness now the key two player has to jump into key one spot and then they've got to figure out what to do to cover key two and so on and so on so it's uh it's not necessarily as much time chaos for the performers as it is for the technicians but it it can be quite challenging for sure but again it's it's all mindset right and the same sort of goes for touring performers you you learn so much more in such a smaller amount of time than you might if you were just sitting down in a theater for months on end if, mm -hmm. if they were able to see that then it was great uh many were not and it would be oh this is hard <laughs> It's like, yep, that it is work after all. <laughs> yeah, we we, are, we often say that uh, for those who are in the arts, that art chooses you. You don't you don't choose to be an artist, and that right. you do this not so much for the money. Of course, you need to have money to you know to, to live and you know pay your bills and what have you, but you're doing it because you you love uh, the art that you're pursuing. Now, as you were talking about some of the dynamics of touring and being around the same people for weeks, mm -hmm. months on end. Talk a little bit about the whole, the, the, the non-artistic part, but the humanistic part of how are you getting along with people? Talk about the importance of how do you interact with people who you see every day, all day. <laughs> you're in airports, you're on the buses for hours on end, you're in restaurants, you're doing the concerts and you're hopping back on the bus with those same people. Talk about some of the, some of the, some of the pros and cons and some of the, I mean, the positive aspects of it, but I'm sure you have some stories where people who were a little obtuse who didn't necessarily <laughs> play well with others, as it were. How did, how, did you, how, did, how did you negotiate those kinds of situations? That is a, how much time do we have? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, at Clemson, there are, these, uh, there are these classes called PA 101, 201, 301, right? Um, and I've spoken to a couple of Rick's previous classes, and I was just speaking with uh, Matt's uh, PA class a few weeks ago, Rick. And he always asks, you know, what what would you have studied back in college uh, with the knowledge that you have now? Like, what what classes might you have taken? And I always come back to like finance for sure. I wish I had known more about money, <laughs> especially with uh, owning a business. But the thing that always uh, just like immediately jumps into my brain is behavioral science or psychology <laughs> or something like that because of exactly what you're asking about, right? I mean. It is it is tough um, when when from the crew side, when you're hiring people, uh, as I evolved into that sort of management position, it became 
quintessential to try and identify some characteristics that would align with the other members of the team to try and make sure that we weren't going to have a whole lot of infighting, right? And you can't expect everybody to be friends. And I don't need anybody to be friends in those moments. You just need to have, you know, mutual respect. You need to have uh, kindness, all of these things that, you know, sound like, well, duh, but like you actually have to be intent on trying to find the people with those traits, unfortunately. So on the crew side, depending on the year, depending on the, you know, supply and demand of how many tours were on the road versus how many technicians were available versus what the budget was and how much you could pay people, you always tried to navigate that and put the 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 people in the positions that, you know, would would respect each other and would appreciate each other. Rules, man, especially when it comes to the the tour bus rules, you know, boundaries. Um there's a it's it's not the most glamorous thing, but as a sort of like respect for the other 10 people on the tour bus with you that you sleep in every night, there's a rule that there's no number two, right? There's a bathroom in there, but no <laughs> nobody's allowed to go number two. <laughs> again, not glamorous, but that's a it's a good indicator of like a rule that was set in place. Uh, with the with the intention of you know protect everybody take care of everybody the the lead technicians on the tour you know you, you would try and find leaders for lack of a better word who would try and protect their team as they were going through things um you're always going to have the people who are i'm just here for me um but i think one of the one of the beautiful things about you know performing arts theater especially is that it is inherently collaborative, right? Like you can't you can't really do your job without the rest of the team. Um, so it's it's almost like a built-in quality in a lot of the people who have chosen that career path, right? So that uh, it's it's not like you're trying to have to uh, convince people that like, hey, you got to be nice to them because you're literally going to be making out on stage later because that's what your characters do. <laughs> like it's it's almost. Uh, it's almost innate in many cases. So yeah, I feel like I'm rambling about this, but uh, no, I think I think it's, it's massively important. I wish more people would pay more attention to sort of, again, behavior and trying to make sure that they're putting people together in these situations. Cause you're, you're just, you're on a deserted Island with the same 60 people for nine months at a time and trying to survive that without going crazy is uh it's a good challenge for sure. Yeah. Mike, tell us a little bit. So you did the Avenue Q tour mm -hmm. for a while and then uh, it, that tour either ended or you decided to move on. So talk a little bit about the business aspect of how do you find the next gig? How do you, you know what I'm saying is that you went from there to, if I remember Mamma Mia might've been the second tour you did. I, you can correct me, but Talk a little bit about that whole kind of changing tours and what comes next and how do you look for a bigger tour and does it make more money for you and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's great. So I was in the uh, privileged position uh, of I was working for the production company, right? So that first tour, I got picked up by the company that was doing the producing of the tours. So my job went from sort of worrying about what show I'm going to be on next to helping the production company figure out what show they wanted to produce next. Right. And so I, I didn't have a typical uh, touring technician path necessarily. Uh, so a lot of those things were decided for me. However, all of the technicians that we hired, you know, nobody wants to do a one nighter tour, right? Like 
you heard me describe what it sounds like. It sounds awful, right? <laughs> yeah. The the ironic part of all of it is that many of the stagehands are part of a union called IATSE, right? Uh, International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. And they have contracts that sort of declare minimums for sort of working standards, right? Uh, depending on your uh, political inclinations, uh, I think I think it's great. I think having a, a body that can, you know, protect people from greedy money makers is awesome. <laughs> but the irony of all of the Broadway tours that are all covered by IATSE is that the big national, big first national tours that sort of do that that A market that I was describing earlier their working condition minimums are so much higher than the one-nighters, right? So they get paid way more. Uh, they get better rules. They don't have to work as many hours. They get better bumps in pay if they go past a certain hourly threshold. Those shows are making more money, and therefore they theoretically can afford uh, to, to, to give that more money back to the technicians. When you're on a one-nighter situation, there's very little money being exchanged, right? It's kind of like the, the I don't know quite how to describe it, but the, the profit margins are just lower, right? It's a more stable uh, investment in a lot of ways because it's, you know, tried and true. And we know that the venues want the show and we've got it, you know, very efficiently built out, but they're just not making a lot of profit. And therefore those tiers of the contract are lower. And so the minimums are lower. Um, so when I started, I think the the contract minimum for a touring assistant technician was like $650 a week, right? Wow. And for $650 a week, and they also had, you know, access to healthcare and some retirement stuff through the union as well. So it wasn't just that. And they would get per diem as well. Um, but $650 a week when you're doing, you know, 16-hour days is terrifying. Again, don't do math, right? Um, <laughs> And then on the bigger tours, that same sort of type of job, which was theoretically working less hard because they weren't doing the one-nighters and so on, and they had an easier schedule, those minimums were like $1,200. So they were getting paid twice as much for doing half the work. Mm. Um, so nobody wants to do a one-nighter is the the punchline, right? So, But people often don't have much of a choice if they're coming out of college you know it's a good stepping stone nobody goes into one-nighters and they're like i'm gonna stay here forever this is my career it's almost always <laughs> like hey let me try this out do i like it i'm never gonna get on a first national because that's what all the people who have been touring for five six ten years you know evolve into so you try that out for a year or two you try and work your way up through the ranks uh you might try a different production company if it's you know networks tour and you didn't have a great experience maybe your next tour you'll jump over to work light productions and maybe that'll be a better experience um and then as you sort of navigate through do i want to be an assistant do i want to be a head the head gets paid a lot more but it's a lot more responsibility now just stay in the assistant world or whatever and then they get introduced to other technicians who work on bigger shows and then they you know get get picked to to do better work i mean it's it it's actually a pretty decent like merit system right like it's it's a little bit of nepotism everybody has nepotism right but it, it is definitely a oh wow you're really good that means my life is going to be really easy if i hire you cool come come work on this really big expensive project with us um and for a lot of people that's the goal and then for a lot of other people that's still just another stepping stone to get to broadway right and a lot of the producers and the production managers who handle those 
higher echelon tours are in fact the ones who work on Broadway. And so again, if you sort of like work your way up the ranks and people like you, they say, come make my life easier. Great. Um, and then many people stop there. And we've got several people that we've worked with over the past decades now who like got to Broadway and that's literally just, Hey, I'm going to go run a show for four hours a night and get paid $3,000 a week. Doesn't sound half bad, right? I mean, it's a lifestyle choice, but it's not a bad gig. And then some people get tired and they're like, no, I want to have kids and I can't have kids if I'm going to be at work all night. So maybe I'll go work in a shop or something like that. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's a nice built in sort of like ground uh, in which to prove yourself in the touring industry. And then once you sort of decide what you end up wanting to do after that, you know, again, it, it sort of give you that resume as well as that experience of being able to kind of pick your poison and decide what you want to do past there. You were speaking earlier about um, your pathway, you know, and you sort of, I guess, sound like as if you sort of backed into the theatrical world. Yeah. How many people have you encountered who have a similar story? I mean, people who who started mm -hmm. out as sort of a, a just a member of the cast, not necessarily a leading role, but mm -hmm. found themselves uh, migrating to a part just because they enjoyed being in the arts. How many people have you encountered who, who have a, a similar path as yours? Um, well, I'm very special, right? So not a lot of people. <laughs> I knew uh -huh. that, night from the moment I met you. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> so uh, again, uh, a lot of the people who, who sort of get into the touring world do that intentionally out of college, right? I didn't necessarily think that was the, the path for me and it turned out that it was, and it was great. There are a lot of people jumping around a bit in the shop world now that i'm just you know building things for lack of a better word there are a lot of people in the, the sort of entertainment fabrication world that had a similar path of like oh, i grew up in construction and you know oh cool yeah i can just build out oh wait i can make money doing this cool stuff oh i'm gonna go do that instead so i think there's quite a few of the people that work at our shop specifically but then i know as well as a lot of the other commercial shops in the new york area uh, who sort of followed that same path. They sort of grew up in fabrication or grew up in construction and then were sort of like illuminated that there is this creative world out there that they could apply the same skill sets to. And it's, of course, it's more attractive, right? Of course, that would be a fun place to to go uh, experiment. And so I think that I've I've fortunately interacted with a lot of people on that side that have had a similar experience. I don't know that I ever encountered any performers who were just like, I just showed up and I auditioned and now I'm on tour or something like that. You know, most of them, all of them, I think all sort of came at it with the intention of this is what I want to be doing. What I, what I did observe quite a bit though, was the cool. Somebody starts as a, an actor or a musician and then they get a management bug, which I don't know how that happens necessarily, <laughs> but somebody decides, Oh, I can be in charge. This is going to be fun. Uh, and they'll become a stage manager or a production manager or a company manager. Um, so there are a lot of performers who evolve into that sort of management world, which is, you know, often better hours, often better pay, significantly less hard on the body. Like there's a lot of pros for it. So I don't mean to like demean it uh, necessarily, but it's 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 fascinating seeing the the creatives who then decide they want to sort of get into the management side of things um, <laughs> and ultimately often turn into producers and often, you know, grow into 
the people who are now writing the checks for the performers who are doing Hamilton. So it's a I, I can tell you with, with 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 Rick being a dean, he can explain how you go from being a a marching band guy to becoming the dean of a prominent college. So it's <laughs> probably the same kind of thing. Uh, you lose sight of reality, I think. So yeah. So hey, Mike, we have so many more questions to ask you. I wonder if you wouldn't mind uh, sticking around, and uh, we'll make uh, maybe a second part to the series. And uh, if you could hang on for a little bit, if you have. Uh, some more time for us absolutely that'd be great okay so this is rick and ron uh feeding the starving artist and we'll be back next week with more with mike east we'll see you then and we should remind our our listeners don't forget to subscribe to our podcast thank you so much yeah like us and rate us highly (laughs) (laughs) we'll see you next time bye-bye bye-bye